Welcome to Give a Heck. I am your host, Dwight Heck, and for much of my life, lived my life in quiet desperation, wondering how I was going to pay the bills, take vacations, save for retirement, and one day wondering if I would get off the hamster wheel of life and have purpose. A life that most of society lives, which takes us to work, then home, then repeat, and pays us hopefully enough just to survive. The harsh truth that most live with more months than money and have no idea how to live life on purpose, not by accident. This ensures the mass majority are living not just financially broke, however emotionally and mentally as well due to financial pressures. In each episode, I will introduce you to thoughts, ideas, and guests that can help you to learn how you too can live life on purpose, not by accident. Good day and welcome to Give a Heck. On today's show, I welcome Carrie Shell, a midwife, personal trainer, yoga instructor, doctoral candidate, speaker, and author. Carrie Shell has dedicated her life's work to health and wellness. As an addiction specialist helping others in their recovery, Carrie realized she, like millions of other women, was a gray drinker, not an alcoholic but her relationship with alcohol was unhealthy in a gray area. On her personal journey to create balance in her own life, Carrie created the Innovative 10-Day Reset Program and wrote her latest book, The Gray Drinking Reset, a 30-day journey to wellness designed to help women who have our gray drinkers create healthier lifestyles, bringing more happiness and clarity and ultimately allowing space for women to become happier feel better, and live a fuller life. Carrie also hosts wellness retreats for women to connect and reset their wellness journey in Costa Rica, where she currently resides. I'd like to welcome you to the show, Carrie. Thanks so much for agreeing to come on and share with us some of your life journey. I am so happy to be here. Thank you for having me. You're welcome. I'm excited and looking forward to this. Um, I know when I was on the service and and I seen your request, and I was reading through your profile, and then I went and checked out your website. I thought, you know what? This is something that has really been prevalent in our society for a very long time. It bothers me, and I've talked to people mm-hmm. even before I've seen your profile for years. I even coached people about the fact of how our society has gotten so complacent in regards to people casually drinking for everything. I, I challenge people, name me a TV show that you like or a movie where somebody isn't in the middle of the day at their job going over to a decanter and pouring themselves a <laughs> bourbon, a scotch, or, or whatever, and drinking. Or in the right. middle of the day, somebody pouring a glass of wine. And I'm not against people drinking. I don't want anybody to think that. I, You know, things in moderation can be okay, but some people their moderate level of moderation would be what we're going to discuss today is, is causing them challenges. It's causing them that gray area. So I so appreciate the fact that somebody's shining a light on this. So congratulations on that. One of the things that I focus on in my podcast and I start with, and I think is so prevalent is that connection so that people can know, like, and trust who Carrie is. So if they Mm. do have challenges, they will, you know, reach out to you. And that's why it's so important for us to discuss your origin story. I hear a lot of people say, well, what's your back end? And people start at, you know, high school. Well, guess what, people? 
Carrie was a little sweet little girl, <laughs> grew up to the beautiful lady she is today. And along that journey, she's learned a lot of things. She's had trials and tribulations. And I personally would like to know, and many of my listeners love the fact that I focus on the origin story before we get into the meat and potatoes. So could you do me a favor and tell me what things were like in your life from your earliest recollections of your childhood to adulthood to where you're currently at? Oh my gosh, I don't think we have enough time, but yes, I would love to. So I grew up in Toronto, in Canada, and I am the youngest of five kids. I have four older brothers. And growing up, we had the idyllic family. Our our parents were young and they were active. They were, you know, the football coach, the cub pack leaders. You know, they were kind of the cool parents on the block. And we we did we had a very happy, um, engaging childhood. Lots of family, extended family. Um, but two things happened when I was 10 turning 11. The first is my aunt and five of my cousins died in a house fire. And a few months later, my father um, left our family. So the family kind of imploded. And the fallout from that, uh, the biggest thing in terms of what we're talking about, the brother closest in age to me, Pat, was 13 at the time and he started to drink at that point he had I only learned this after fast forward years later uh reading some of his writings that at that time he somehow had some alcohol and he found that that gave him some sort of relief and so really that was the entry point for me at a very young age of of alcoholism in someone else and seeing that and, and living with the repercussions of that. Um, gee, I got sidetracked there. So really just a normal, even though the family was then divided and it wasn't no longer the ideal of family. And back in the seventies, it wasn't the norm for families to get divorced. So we were the only divorced family in our neighborhood that brought on with it a whole other host of feelings and emotions um, that you realize a lot of time when you're older. I feel very blessed. I think God was intervening for me that I never felt angry or resentful or bitter during those years that I always actually felt sad and lonely for my dad who I always worried that he'd be lonely coming from a family of seven now he was on his own so I was very blessed that I I remained fairly happy and stable to a certain extent during that time now going to university went to university I went to live in France to finish university and from there I really, it was a good time for me to make a change from my life in Toronto. You know, in the 80s, it was definitely um, financially driven. And I was realizing that I wanted to, I didn't want to be part of that, that I wanted to explore other aspects of my life. And moving to France gave me a nice reset to do so in a place where I could just go somewhere where I wasn't known and just live out to be the person I wanted to be. And so that took me on a crazy, 
crazy adventures, you know, from there, I was, you know, a deadhead touring around North America. I lived on a commune. I did more university work after I graduated school in France and I moved out to Nova Scotia at that point. And it was when I was hearing a guest lecturer at Dalhousie University that something just clicked for me. And this woman, the speaker, her name was Ina Mae Gaskin. And probably your audience isn't familiar with Ina Mae, but she is really the grandmother of modern day midwifery. And she lived on a place called The Farm in Tennessee, had a very influential book out called Spiritual Midwifery. And I had never even really heard of midwives or been familiar with what midwives do. But in this talk, something just clicked within me that I thought, wow, that's really what I want to do. And after the lecture, I introduced myself to her and she agreed to take me on. And she developed a course of education for me that saw me going to Tennessee and then later to El Paso, Texas, where I did my midwifery education. And I actually moved back to, to Ontario in Canada and was in that first cohort of legalized midwives in the country when midwifery became legalized. Yes, listeners, there was a time when midwives weren't part of our healthcare system. So I worked in a practice in Ontario for a bit and then Life saw me moving back out to Nova Scotia, where midwives weren't integrated into the healthcare system yet. So I worked for many years with provincially and federally writing legislation and regulation and policy as the president of our professional organization and worked as a midwife for many years, for decades. That journey, once midwifery became regulated in Nova Scotia, I really wasn't happy with the model that they went for. And I thought it was a good place and a good time for me to step back and reassess my career. So I went and I did graduate studies. I got my master's. And at that time, I really decided I wanted to be a physician. I thought, you know what, I could probably have more impact as a physician and I could open up a birth center and I could have midwives work with me. And so I then started to do all my undergraduate sciences so I could go to med school. And I applied to med school and I got in and the program I wanted to go to was outside of Nova Scotia. And I thought, you know what? I have a strong family unit. It will be okay. I'll be away for a certain amount of time and then come home. And I have to say that at the time, uh, my youngest child was two. I have seven kids and the youngest was two. And my husband, God bless him, you know, we thought we could make it work. But after the first term, we realized it probably wasn't the best decision. And so I returned to Nova Scotia. And it was only about a year later that I realized that I was um, not clinically depressed, but I was definitely struggling with leaving med school thinking that that had been what my next steps in my life were going to be and I really got to a place where I could be completely thankful that that didn't happen that that didn't materialize because I really owned that being a mom and having these amazing kids is a priority and if I had been a physician that would I wouldn't have had the relationship that I do now with my kids 
that intimacy, the closeness, the bonding that would never have happened. And I don't think I could have been a happy adult continuing if that wasn't part of my life. So I was able to look at that, what I thought was a loss at the time and be very grateful and thankful that it didn't happen. And what that actually afforded me to do was to step back and say, okay, you live in rural Nova Scotia. You've, you've been a professional midwife for 20 years. You have a graduate degree, but you have to travel at least an hour, really two hours to have a career that will be of interest to, you know, to match your education and skill set. What do you like doing? So I thought I went and I became a personal trainer. I started, I did my first yoga instructor certification at that point. And that in combination with my graduate work and my life and career as a primary caregiver, as a midwife, opened the doorway for me being hired as a director of health and wellness to a brand new residential addiction facility in the area. And the joy there was that they said, this is a new place. You have carte blanche to develop the program. So with all of my research that I had been doing, because at that point I was working on my PhD, because I thought if I can't be a medical doctor, darn it. I'll, I'll get my PhD feeling still at that point that worth was somehow connected with title, that there was, I let that go. I let that go listeners. Um, but my, my graduate work for my PhD, I would really showed that yoga, meditation, and physical activity were effective in a lot of cases, more effective in dealing with alcoholism and addiction than traditional methods of treatment. And so the program I developed had those three components as its foundation. And that led me to write my first book, Yoga Recovery. And I left the world of addictions at the, at the center and just started to work privately and in, in talking at conferences and at conventions and other things in the addiction world, in the yoga space. And... I really then just right before COVID, I decided to take a step back because my spiritual journey all through that time had started to take the front seat in my life. And I realized that even though I could cultivate and generate more followers on Instagram, I really needed to pull back and assess how I could do that if I could keep my spiritual life, my faith life as part of that and do it with on with authenticity and integrity and then COVID hit. And so that was actually a perfect break. And that's when at the beginning of COVID, I really came to own the gray drinking. And so now, so now I'm back <laughs> with a new book that's coming out October 18th, The Gray Drinking Reset, and really just wanting to speak to people about it. Because as you said, drinking has become so commonplace that that benchmark of what is normal and acceptable is every day. And what that does is it really does numb us out in a way, or it's a different kind of spirit that comes upon us that really puts a, a thin veil between us and our true authentic self and what 
our true faith and spiritual life can look like. And so we gravitate towards that instead of going deeper within. So there you go. That's my very abridged life. Um, it's been, you know, and now I live I in Costa Rica. It. We decided, you know, last year that we would sell our family home that we had been in for 20 years. And just, we arrived in Costa Rica, October 23rd, just with bags. And we just thought, you know what? We feel really called here. We're just going to trust. We're going to trust that God, that the universe has it all figured out. And we've just been winging it and it's, it's working out. Okay. So we're all good. Well, your smile says everything for those listening, go watch on YouTube. Your smile, <laughs> when you said that is it answers everything. Obviously it's, it was your calling. It's where you needed mm-hmm. to be, especially, you know, I love your origin though, as you went through and, and talked about it and, you know, you talked about being a divorce you know, part of a divorced family in the seventies and my parents are still together, but I knew quite a few that were divorced and I couldn't believe how mean people can be. And, you know, the little whispers and the conversations, cause it wouldn't be polite to be forward about it or be genuine. Just let's hide behind the shadows and whisper and gossip it. And I grew up in a small community of like 10,000 people. So if there was a divorced family, it was everybody knew. It was, mm-hmm. it was like wildfire. And so I can appreciate, you know, that, that had to have been a lot though. Like you talked about, you worried about the fact, you know, that your dad was sad and lonely um, because at that age, you probably didn't realize exactly what caused the rift or what made it so that it became divorced or you had your assumptions, but you know, and the reason I mentioned that is I went through a divorce, right? And then I became, I was initially had joint custody of my kids, my four daughters and a, and a son. So a little bit different. You're a daughter with four brothers. I That's personally, right. personally have four, do- four the, do- the girls are the oldest and my son's the youngest. And I seen what they went through and I, you know, joint custody situation. And then eventually I ended up getting permanent custody of them and you know, they get to be adults and we have conversations. And that was one of the things they always, they were worried about dad, is dad lonely. And then they right. moved in with me and I never had time to be lonely. <laughs> I was <laughs> That's right. was, with, with four daughters and a boy, it was, it was a uh, character building. We'll put it, to, put it at that. But so you jet set it off to France. That must've been an experience. So, so how long were you in France for? I was in France for a year and at the time um, I was, I was going for my last year, my, to graduate from university and, you know, it was the, it sounds so cliche, but it was the eighties and, you know, the, the whole wall street thing and the feeling that money somehow defined your worthiness and something in me was really I had been part of that for sure, but something also, there was a voice inside me that was needing to get out. And I, I found that that was my out to go to France and to just exhale and just say, no one knows me here. So what do you want to do? Who are you from this moment on And, and be genuine? And it was very liberating. I was very thankful. Well, you could redefine yourself that escape exactly. is escapism listeners or people watching escaping 
your current circumstances and going somewhere somewhere else, don't let the society define you. What does society say? You're running away from your problems. Mm. That's not true. Sometimes those problems need to be left behind. That baggage dropped and you start anew. Like we live throughout our phases, like you talked about with your origin, we wear different masks. We do, right? Like a Lewis Howes, if you know who he is, he talks about mm-hmm. how family, how people wear masks in life. I've had to drop my mask many times. And then there's been opportunities in my life where I wish I could have, but I right. was, but I was by choice trapped, right? Mm-hmm. Because of, of family or circumstances. And, you know, like, I like how you talked about the fact um depression set in at a point in your life and you realize family was everything it wasn't you know about always achieving and pushing and moving forward and the reason I bring that up is myself with my own kids before I realized that I was going to have to go to the legal system and get permanent custody of them to protect them I was on track to be very big in the finance industry, literally seven figure multiple per year. I literally woke up one day and said, I can't do this. I prayed to God repeatedly and I kept on avoiding the answer. Spiritually, I was just not feeling in place. I was worried about them all the time when they weren't with me. And I walked away from it. And, you know, I was used to having at that point in time, consistent seven, you know, seven figure volume and sales. I was consistently bringing in healthy six figures, but you know, money didn't mean nothing. Well, then all of a sudden, when you bring five kids into the fold, they have extracurricular activities, soccer, dance, <laughs> right? Yes, of um, course. Cheerleading. So I was busy every night. Well, guess when my business is most busy in the evenings. <laughs> Right. During the day, I deal with businesses, but in the evenings, it's families. I'm going to their homes because they're working at jobs. I had to do, I was lucky if I got out one day a week. So all of a sudden, it went from being a high financially to a low financially. But on the emotional spectrum, it went from low to a high because now Mm -hmm. I felt my kids were safe and I didn't equate. It took me a while. I'll be honest with you. It took me probably a couple of years to let go of this you know, the financial stress, living on that hamster wheel and going, oh my gosh, this is what I used to have. And not being present in the moment of what I now had, which was so much better. Did we struggle? Oh, goodness gracious. Did we ever struggle? There was times where I had family and friends bring us food and like talk about a high down to a low, but that was all materialistic based. So I had to get to a point where I was confident and back in check with myself it took a couple of years where I could figure out the work schedule along with them just to make enough to survive not barely mm-hmm. survive but survive and be comfortable so that they could have their needs met and I could have my needs met now having needs met you mentioned it too isn't just about what you have it's the six inches between our ears so and I've been working on that ever since and developed my own programs to help people out so and I like the fact that you said worth is not about title. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yeah, I think it's really important. I think people today really confuse self-esteem and self-worth. And I like to talk about this because self-esteem is like a bank account. And 
you can do things to gain credit and build up that bank account. So by the things we do and our actions we take, maybe it's even just our internal thoughts, whatever that might be, you might set out a goal for yourself and achieve it. So that puts currency into that self-esteem bank. You may do things that you're not proud of, you don't like, you may you know, be on, low, on a lower vibration and that's all withdrawing that self-esteem bank. But self-worth, self-worth, the best example I have is a newborn baby. You know, you hold that little baby and you are just overwhelmed with love, whether it's your baby or not. You are looking at this perfection. You would do anything for that baby. You would, you know, protect it at all costs, do anything you could for that baby. And that baby is of such worth and value. And that baby's doing nothing. That baby doesn't have a job, doesn't have an income, doesn't have a degree, doesn't have Facebook followers, Instagram likers. It is simply the fact that that baby is here and present in this world, that it is worthy of that love, the adoration, all of those nurturing, high level vibrational emotions, all of the positive that we are attributing to this baby is all its self-worth. And so that baby doesn't lose its worthiness just because it becomes a toddler, a five-year-old, a 10-year-old, a 16-year-old, a 20-year-old. We don't lose that worthiness. And people lose sight of that. They confuse being worthy of all that is good in our world and all that we can offer one another with their self-esteem. And those external things, a lot of times, that are wrapped up with self-esteem. So for me, I was still feeling a bit of that when I wanted to be a medical doctor. And I wanted to be a medical doctor for good reasons. I had, I was going to convert an old wing at the little community hospital that had been for veterans, but it, it was closing down. I thought that would be a good space for a birth center because the places for women to give birth in our community in the Annapolis Valley were dwindling and they could only go to one hospital and had to travel. So my intentions were, were good and true. And so when I couldn't be the medical doctor, there was still something in me just needing to achieve, prove, prove to myself, maybe prove to others, but I still had that in me. And so I applied and I got in to do my PhD. But on that journey, after I had done all my coursework and was starting the dissertation, I realized, why do I even want this? Like, I don't, I don't want to be a professor. I really couldn't care if I have the title. Why are you doing this? And I had to really check in and ask myself why I was doing it. And I realized, ah, because you feel that this will give you more value. And I realized, no, it won't. I I'm really happy with where I am. I'm happy the journey I'm on. And I think that's the thing to remember as we all go through our journeys, we don't necessarily understand at the time, but we're blessed with hindsight afterwards. And if we take the time to really assess where we were and where we are, usually that journey provides for the best for us. As you said, you may have lost that income, but you gained that relationship with your kids and you provided something for your kids that was so valuable. And even in the hardships, the financial hardships, they saw some beautiful things. They saw family and friends coming together to support you. 
they saw that you were committed to them beyond everything else. And I'd like to think that my children and my family saw that in me also, that they, even through the ups and downs, that they saw that they were a priority and that they saw unconditional love and what that looks like. So I think it's really important to really evaluate and take time if, if we give ourselves that little luxury of time to just say, so what is important? Like write down a list. A good thing I like to ask people to do is write down what are the most important things to you? So my life list could look like my children, my husband, you know, family, my taking care of myself physically, my faith life, whatever those things could be. Then I like to ask people, okay, so write down, or maybe even beforehand, write down, how do you spend your day? Like, let's write down, okay, so I spend six hours at a job, you know, and then I ask them, do you like the job? Is it fulfilling? Make a little note on that job. What else do you do? Oh, I spend three hours on social media or, or a screen. Um, I do, you know, and I start all over the next day. Even though they've prioritized family, being fit, eating well, you know, none of those things really fit into this other thing of how they're living their life. And it's really important to, to mesh those together so that you see, holy, like what I do in my day does not match what I value. So what do I need to do here to make it more, in, more congruent with what I truly value and need in my life? And I think when we do that, when we take that time, we see that some things actually don't matter and some things don't really benefit and aren't healthy. And I could be using my time to do things that create more value and worth to me and for me. Yeah, we got to check in with ourselves is, you know, what keeps on resoundingly screaming inside of my head, you know, as it was, you're talking, it's true, though, we have to appreciate and like I wrote down, you talked about, you know, write down some things and I put down a list of gratefulness, right? Because so many people don't have gratitude and aren't grateful. They're always on the hunt. They're always on the chase for mm -hmm. more. And that's not, there's nothing wrong with wanting to no. better oneself. As long as you don't leave everything around you behind or leave a wake in your journey. And, you know, we're always, I look at people that, don't celebrate where they're at in life and go, you know, well, I don't want to think about this stuff. And I'll go, well, why not? Well, it's depressing, sad. Well, guess what? You don't have happiness without acknowledgement of the bad times, the hills and right. valleys, the valley of despair. You need to have that awareness of where you've been, where you're going and be grateful. Because if you don't, I find when people don't have that, they're always on the hunt, as I mentioned, and they're not enjoying the journey of life. They're always striving to the next destination, next, the next goal. Oh, I achieved this. They don't even take enough time to celebrate it or to look back at, oh my gosh, look what I did, what I, I accomplished. Agree. Did I leave a wake behind me? Did I leave my mm -hmm. family behind? Did I hurt some people just to get that title or that recognition or that accomplishment? And I know myself, maybe it's just an age thing, but I focus like even today before I start my day, before I even... I refuse to get out of bed without having gratitude, 
right? And doing a gratefulness exercise where I appreciate the simplest things, even being able to step out of my bed and be able to walk and just do the simple right. thing, like brushing our teeth and people laugh at me. Well, I'll <laughs> say to them, do you appreciate the fact you can brush your teeth? <laughs> well, yeah, right. but it's just, it's just there. Yeah. Because you taking it for granted. There's yes. people out there that even in our own city of where I live in Edmonton, they estimate that over 25% of our population lives in poverty, right? And I yeah. tell people that as a, as a goal person that coaches on lifestyle and goal setting and then working with them on their financial life, you know, your life is right now to you, it's in a shambles. It's recoverable. It's repairable with some work and effort on your part. There's people out there, approximately 25% of the population that don't even have, even if they sat with me, could never get to where you have the opportunity. So that's something, right. the first thing you should be grateful for. Is it going to hurt? Is it going to be a struggle? Yes, it will be. But the nice thing is, is for everything that you have a struggle, you think to yourself, I've got to struggle to change my life, the way I live life. But along the way, I'm going to have gratitude and be grateful that mm -hmm. I can do it. Yes. And I've found somebody, right? Whether a person's God-fearing or spiritual or whatever, the universe, somebody has been brought to me to help me out. So I try to, that sometimes the six inches is the hardest thing to deal with people. To deal with just the physical black and white of numbers isn't that hard. Right. right. It's pretty simplistic. Let's learn how to budget. Let's do some goal setting. What do you want to accomplish? It's the six inches that we go through those trials and tribulations that seem to slow us down. But I really appreciate mm -hmm. you also talking about the fact that self-esteem is like a bank account. I had never heard that stated like that. I'm going <laughs> to steal that and talk to people about it that, because that is that is so it is so right. It's so prevalent. Right. Well, then so, it gives people a, <laughs> um, some sort of reference point. So you're not feeling good about yourself. Okay, so what have you been doing that would put collateral, put some currency in that banking account? Are you thinking negative thoughts about yourself? Deplete, deplete. Have you been kind to yourself today? Add, add. Have you done something nice for someone else today? Yes. Did you stay focused? Were you positive at your job and you didn't? grumble like you have a thankful heart that you even have a job that will give you a paycheck you know and I think as you said being thankful and even I encourage people to cultivate those practices that may ring really hollow at first so I like you when I before I even get out of bed I just say three thank yous like thank you thank you thank you and the same thing when I go to bed and I encourage people to try that and they'll think, oh my gosh, this is so stupid. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> but the not, more you do not, it, oh. the more you do it, the more it becomes, it's, it's like brushing your teeth. You don't feel good and clean to go to sleep or to start your day until you've said your thank yous, until you've acknowledged that gratitude there. And I think it's really important to do. Yeah, it, uh, definitely. And I also, on top of, you know, educating and coaching people about that i teach them the practice of getting out of their mindset to never say ever again and it is possible i've been working on it for years i'm not perfect at it but i never have bad days ever because mm. there's always a light in your day and i'll say to people well they'll you know clients will call me or i'll run into somebody in whatever circumstance face to face or on a call like this and they'll say i've had a bad day and I'll say, well, tell me about your day. 
what did it, what was it like when you woke up? Oh, we did this. And they're all of a sudden their, de- their demeanor and their energy changes a little bit. And they'll get up to the point where their day became bad. And I'll say, well, you didn't have a bad day. Well, I did. I just told you that you had a bad moment. And by right. you're conditioning your mind to stick to that, that becomes an anchor in your focal mindset. And now it drags down your energy and the, and your mind and your subconscious are saying, hey, I had a bad day. You bring that home to your family. You maybe bring that to your business. Let's say you, it was a bad appointment. You come back to your office or whatever the case may be. You made a conscious choice by wording that society has conditioned us. We can recondition ourselves. Again, everything you and I do isn't necessarily hard, but it's not easy either Mm -hmm. because we're dealing with the conditioning of their six inches between our ears. So I literally teach people little strategies and how to break that habit of saying, I'm having a bad day. And I teach them the same thing as you, you say the three thankful things, whatever it works for a person, I'll tell them lay in bed and say, you know, thank you for today. I had these character building moments. I had this character building moment and, and analyze it. Think about it. What could I have done different when that character building moment happens? And then when you go to bed, acknowledge that you had it, but, and it also acknowledge the fact that you were strong enough to let it not destroy your day. You still had a good day, but you had some Mm -hmm. defining character building moments and people are like shocked. Like, well, does it work? I said, Hey, I'm working project. <laughs> Trust me. It works. Yeah. You know, as a dad raising uh, five kids, four of them daughters, um, as you can tell, I'm bald. <laughs> ah, right. Yeah. So I had to learn different things and, and I'll say, you know, yourself or a combination of listening to other people, reading books, maybe it's, you know, podcasts, maybe it's documentaries, whatever. Like I have a lot of different books I've read over the years. Now I'm an audible freak. I like listening to books. I can ingest, digest part of me more, but we're all combination. So I, I tell people like, I'm not unique. I just have taken enough information from the buffet of life and put it toward where I think it's digestible. And now I can give it to others to help them, you know, climb in their lives. But I like how you talked about that. It's yeah, this is a fantastic conversation. I love it. (laughs) Well, and you know, when I am having a day when I'm really struggling or challenging, I feel very blessed that in the midst of those moments, because it's been great moving to Costa Rica. However, it has been not what we had expected. We've had many challenges, many hard days. And really at the point we moved, we were on the tail end of three very, very challenging years and we were looking to exhale here. And even amidst the challenging days here, I feel blessed that I can say, thank you God for this challenge. Like, thank you for giving me this challenge to help me grow and make me a better person and stronger. And thank you for giving me the strength to get through this challenge. I think we need to find, as you say, the gratitude in the challenges. We can acknowledge we're having them, but let's, that's doing the work. That's refining us. That's making us a better individual. That's the grit that makes the pearl. So I think if we can get in that mindset where 
we acknowledge, yeah, like I'm struggling right now. I'm having a really bad day, but it's okay. Thank you. Because I know that there's going to be good coming out of this. And to keep that in mind, it just, it's an important thing to do. Yeah, it absolutely is. We could have this whole conversation just about what we're talking about, because it is, it is, it is a big problem in our society that people don't have gratitude and aren't grateful and they're not bad people they're conditioned from our earliest memories from childhood and the scarring that happens from families whether a family is apart or a family's together doesn't mean that the kids aren't going to learn some terrible patterns right of course you know just because my parents stayed together doesn't mean it would have been um that it was any better than them being apart Sometimes I see it, like, especially in the older families, look at the divorce rate. I know about the rest of the world, but in Canada, the amount of people getting divorced in their 60s with floor people, absolutely floor people. They stay together for the wrong reasons, and they actually damage their family and their kids, and they damage Mm -hmm. themselves. Now, all of a sudden, they're in their 60s, and they're getting divorced, and they're moving on. And it causes other problems because now all of a sudden they're adult kids. Maybe they live such a great facade or a mask that their adult kids didn't realize it. Now they cause trauma at a different juncture in their family's lives. Mm-hmm. But if we started in our, and we're not going to, because this will take us off to a completely different <laughs> tangent. Our education system is, is weak. It's yes. stuck in, in the past. And it didn't even work effectively when it was first created in the in the pattern and structures that are used around the world. We need to teach people, young children, how to cope and look on the opposite side of the negative and look at the fact of being grateful and helping them learn little coping mechanisms if they're going home to a disastrous situation in their home life, which schools mm-hmm. can't effectively change. They just, they can't, but they can help that child learn to think differently are they going to save everybody absolutely not that's not realistic but if we can save one more child every other month or whatever the case may be something needs to get to to have a uh, there has to be a massive change because i look at what i went through listen to what you've gone through and then all the 20 this is my 20th year of coaching people on the lifestyle and then their financed life seeing all the brokenness our society is broke and that's gonna some people will disagree and make think that sounds harsh but if it wasn't broke i wouldn't be doing what i'm doing you wouldn't be doing what you're doing we Mm want to help people and i'm tired of people saying well i can't make a difference bs you can't make a difference you choose not to make a difference how about you take that little baby step every day because i get clients that'll tell me that how about we just work through this here get this book listen to this podcast here, here's some homework for you. <laughs> like, do this and we'll right. talk in a few days. Oh, how did it go? Oh, I ran into this. Okay, what did you learn from it? Constantly being that advocate um, or that person that's, you know, what do you want to call a mentor or a coach? We don't have that in life. And it needs to start sooner because of all the brokenness I've seen the last 20 years. Yes. It's interesting that you say that. I was just having a conversation with someone who went through the addiction center when I was there. And we were having a conversation today. In fact, I hadn't spoken to him for a while. 
and he's gone on through his recovery and now he helps others get through their addiction and alcoholism and he's working in that field and just pointing out that we never know what someone else is experiencing and when you say about doing things it can be something smaller than even reading a book or listening to it it could be that you intentionally make eye contact with people and smile at them because I can tell you that we don't know what's going on in someone's life and eye contact and a smile really signals to another individual I see you and you're present and you're of worth and I know that there have been quite a few people have come to me and said, you know, I was really thinking some really negative thoughts, some suicidal thoughts and thinking my life was worthless. And when you stopped and you smiled and you, that gave me, you know, made the eye contact, something little, there was not even a conversation but it just triggered in that individual that they, that they were worthy, that there was something, someone else was seeing them and, and attributed value to them. So one thing I, another great thing to do is if you're walking down the street, actually make eye contact with people and you'll see people will be very uncomfortable. They're not used to it. We're used to scrolling or listening or tuning out other people. But you'll find the more you do it, the more people will smile back at you and the more happy you feel giving that little gift to someone. If you're on a bus, do it. It's great because you've got a captive audience or a subway or wherever. Well, even going to even going to a convenience store. I yes, love this just conversation. Start smiling and looking at people or just say hi. And you, maybe you're uncomfortable to say hi, but just smile and, and look at them in the eyes and you'll notice that when you're walking down a street, if you see someone, you look at them and you may smile. Why do we immediately look away? We're almost afraid to, to keep that. Not that we that have to human do a connection. Stare, that human but connection we always scared. Yeah. Look away, but just don't just keep the face up and just keep looking. And it's a really beautiful little gift we can give to one another. Yeah. I've, I smile a lot about this because you and I are so much alike. I love it. <laughs> I, I coached my kids since they're little and I can remember taking all of them into you know all five of them in let's say we're going to get a slurpee i remember one time we were in the store and the person that was at the tail it was a lady and i loved her necklace and i said i said hi how are you and okay beep 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 i love your necklace that is so nice her face lit up and she was just her whole demeanor energy changed oh thank you I know, it's I know. amazing. Thank you for noticing it, right? And as we're leaving, we go outside. A couple of my girls go, Dad, why did you do that? Like they were young. <laughs> We've they you were know, embarrassed. We, I'm not even necessarily embarrassed because I had been doing it for a long time. It wasn't something I just started. They were becoming more self-aware. This is after they moved in with me full time. They were seeing more mm -hmm. of a good positive pattern of change. And I said to them, Well, you know what? I might be the I might be the only thing that's happy in that lady's day. I might be the only thing that uh, that one moment, that defining moment could change her day, could change her path of where her day goes, maybe her week. But I said, one thing I will tell you kids, 
because we had a quite a long conversation. I want to get into all the details of how I've coached my kids over the years. I'm not saying they're perfect, but they're more well, better rounded and prepared because of my journey to fix me. Mm-hmm. And I tell them you always have to be sincere though. Never give a false right. compliment ever. Right. And like you said, you could just be a smile. Or it could be a nod or an, looking at them in the eyes. And I always told them too, when you have conversations, look at people in the eyes, do mm-hmm. not, do not avoid eye contact. It's, it's a struggle. It's difficult, but I'd always tell them just be genuine. And they'd see that pattern. I'd go in. Sometimes I get, you know, I pick them up after a business meeting or I'd have to stop and see. And sometimes clients say, oh, you know, bring them in. <laughs> like that's, I have a lot of clients that are fat, become good friends of mine. And I'd go, you know what? I really like your tie or your house is beautiful. Now, if their house isn't beautiful, I'm not saying it because exactly. some people, pe- because then you can be insulting because people can know that you're a phony piece of crap, exactly. right? Be genuine. But I love that. You're, you're so right. That smile, that nod, that eye contact. And I told my kids, so I've been with my adult kids, obviously, in circumstances, they're always kind to servers. They're always kind to when it's, when it's warranted, obviously, don't be mean ever, but kindness comes when it's earned and deserved by that individual right so Hmm. they maybe aren't smiling and they're very friendly to you and they're always refilling your coffee or giving you they're doing their job reward them thank you so much for the great service i really appreciate it and now i hear my kids do the same sort of things or we'll go into a a store and they'll you know they'll compliment the person nice blouse or you know like your like your hat or whatever and it makes them smile because they're spreading kindness and our world would be so much better off with more people spread kindness. It's so funny when people have name tags, I'll always call them by their name tag. And my kids would be, Oh my gosh, you're so American. (laughs) So on more than one occasion, when I've done that and I can tell they're embarrassed, I'll say to the person, would you prefer that I call you by your name or that I don't? They're like, no, call me by my name. See, people like to be, have that connection, even though I'm just calling them, you know, from their name tag, they enjoy that people want to be seen and acknowledged. So great lessons that you taught your kids. Oh, I I did the same thing about the name tags. And initially, they would be embarrassed. Then all of a sudden, they'd be there was times as they were growing up. Dad, that person doesn't have a name tag. I said, okay, so when they come back, I'll I'll tell you what to do. They come back. Oh, thank you so much. They're bringing the food or ketchup or whatever condiment. And I say, you know what? I didn't catch your name. I said, very simple. Just say, hey, I didn't catch your name. Yeah. Right. Oh, it's Sally. It's John. Oh, hi, Sally. John. Thank you so much. I appreciate your service. Right. It just just little things. And, you know, as I as I learned these processes, it was a struggle and uncomfortable for me. And it was kind of uncomfortable teaching my kids these different things as they were growing up too, because like you, as you say, they look at us like, are you, are you nuts? You're embarrassing us. Mm-hmm. But eventually when they see the pattern and I'll tell them, okay, I see that you're, are you dad? You're embarrassing me. Okay. Quit thinking that way. Look at the person that I did it to and watch their body language. I always talked about watch their body language, listen to their tonality, look at their demeanor and realize what I did, if it didn't change them and embarrass them, then I'll stop. Right. And I, and I said that to them over and over again. And then they started realizing, why am I embarrassed? 
we're doing that person a, a, a service, a disservice by not noticing that they exist in this world. You look at how many people in restaurants or service situations, even in a, in a Walmart, don't acknowledge people. Mm-hmm. I like I literally, even when I leave a convenience store or I leave Walmart or I leave Safeway or wherever I'm shopping at, I, I, I'll, you know, the clerk's done doing what they're doing. I'll say, have a great day and God bless and walk out. My kids, it used to, it used to bother them. I've been doing that for 20 years. I'd say about 60 to 70% of the time I hear I, their faces light up and people will say, thank you. God bless you of too. Course. And then of the course. ones that don't, they'll just say, thank you. They'll nod their head and that's, that's yeah. fine. Right. Yeah. I'm being my true self and teaching others that it's okay to be your true self. Look for your tribe. Right. Attract yes. your tribe by being your genuine self, surrounded by kindness and giving out kindness. Right. So anyway, we'll we'll continue on because this is so good. So <laughs> this is a great conversation. Yes, I appreciate you. Thank you. Carrie is a midwife, personal trainer, yoga instructor, doctoral candidate, speaker, and author. Much of your calling, your purpose is health related. Your mission to get information to the masses so they can live their own life with a healthier purpose. The thing that intrigues me the most is the topic of gray drinking. What is the difference between a gray drinker and what society labels an alcoholic? Right. That's a great question. So an alcoholic clinically would be seen as a disease. And so the treatment for that, for recovery is 100% abstinence. A gray drinker, you're not an alcoholic, but you're starting to question, you're having thoughts, you're having this internal conversation and you're wondering, am I drinking too much? Am I drinking too often? Should I take a break from drinking? You may take, uh, say, oh, I'll do sober October and take the month off. But as soon as you're at November 1st, you're drinking again. Um, So you can stop, but then you always return to having drinks. You may go through periods where you're saying, yeah, I think maybe I should cut back. But then the little devil on your shoulder saying, oh, you don't have a problem. Listen, I used to personally, I used to say, listen, if I lived in France, I would be having wine with lunch and I'd be having wine with dinner. You know, it's just North America. We're so hung up on things. You know, we're not just not as laid back as in Europe where what I'm drinking wouldn't be an issue. So we start self-rationalizing. The other challenge is that because probably most of our social group is consuming alcohol how we are. As you said, you know, you go for lunch with your friends and you have wine. I would come home and I'd be getting dinner ready. I, I was a wine drinker. And so I'd have a glass of wine getting dinner ready. And then I'd have a glass of wine with dinner. And then maybe reading a book or on the couch watching a movie, I'd have another glass. And even though that may have been over the course of six to eight hours and I wasn't intoxicated, I wasn't even tipsy. It was the volume had crept up over time to where I was having, you know, like three glasses of wine a day. And that was, that wasn't uncommon. And part of me was saying, wow, this isn't good. You know, I could drink a bottle of wine in an evening, say if I was out, you know, at a party, I I definitely could drink a bottle of wine in an evening. I was never getting drunk and my job was, my work life was never suffering. My personal life wasn't suffering. My health wasn't suffering, but you just, something is nagging in you and you know 
that that relationship is unhealthy. And I think the, the final catalyst for me to take action was with my faith journey. Alcohol can be something, I call it your frenemy. It's, it's always there. It's there when I'm happy. It's there when I'm sad. It's there when I'm angry. It's there when I'm confused, when I'm lonely, when I'm celebrating. It's my frenemy for every occasion. It'll never let me down. When I'm alone, it's there for me. I can always count on that alcohol to be with me. But what I wanted to do was to go to my faith life first. To, if I was having um, a challenge, I wanted to go pray first and, and meditate first. I wanted to put that forward. If I was celebrating, I wanted to give thanks first before I had wine. So I really started to think I really needed to align my spiritual life with my behaviors. And so that's the whole intention with the gray drinking reset that you take initially a 10 day break. And that 10 day, we do some very introductory work enough so that if you're feeling you need more work, you're gonna be compelled and it's gonna pull you in that you're gonna wanna do 30 days. But it gives you that time because I am a true advocate. I always have been one of the pillars of midwifery is informed decision, informed consent, that we need to make an informed decision. And I really don't think you can do that while you're drinking. I think that there's a lot of mixed emotion wrapped up with not consuming alcohol. It, it touches all aspects of our life and all of our relationships. And so in stepping away, for 10 days, that's, that is one good thing I'll say about alcohol is that when you stop drinking, it doesn't take long for the effects to wear off and for you to start feeling benefits physically. Now, emotionally, you're still going to be challenged in those 10 days. You're probably, you know, before you start the challenge, if you're starting on a Monday, I'm a Monday woman. I like to start things on a Monday. I'm going to start working out differently. It's on the Monday. I'm going to change my eating. I'll wait till Monday. So I'm a Monday person. It's a clean start. So if I were to start the 10 day challenge on Monday, on Sunday night, I'd be fretting. I'd be thinking, oh, shoot, I'm really going to miss that glass of wine tomorrow. And I'll already be having that internal dialogue. Um, whereas if I weren't, going to be stopping my internal dialogue would be oh I should make sure I have wine so when I come home tomorrow night I can have a glass <laughs> with my dinner so you will go through some emotional challenges and struggles if your partner if you have a partner and they're not doing the, the challenge with you the 10 days with you how is that going to affect you how are you going to see that relationship differently when that person keeps drinking and they may drink how you were and you're not, are you going to start recognizing, wow, we really were unhealthy in how much we were drinking. And what does that look like? What does it look like with your friends when you go out for lunch and you're not the one having, you're having the soda and not having a glass of wine. If you have a dinner party or go out socially, what does all this look like for you? But thankfully you're going to see benefits. You're not going to be as foggy. I was never hung over, but I definitely had a bit of fog you'll find you might be more patient. You might be more calm. You might be more generous with your time and your energy. You're going to see that you will lose weight. You're going to see you feel better. There are going to be some po tangible positives and that will hopefully allow you 
to make an informed decision on if you want to keep going. Now, the insidious thing about alcohol is that even though you feel all these benefits and you feel better, it's always there. Just like, hey, just haven't, you've proved your point. You went the 10 days, just come and have another glass of wine. You can limit it now. You can, so it's always this push and pull with alcohol. So it's a very tricky dynamic that you need to either learn how to change your patterns and really change how you view alcohol and what role it plays in your life so that if you want to have a glass, it can be a glass and it doesn't need to be every day. You could take it or leave it. It's something that can be an add-on, not not the go-to. And if you can't do that, you may have to find, face the reality that alcohol can no longer be in your life for a while. Yeah, that's that is so true. I look at so many different people that consider themselves to be social drinkers and really in reality they're not they're not social drinkers they turn to alcohol for everything and a lot of what you just mentioned can apply to people with many addictions when it comes of to course. to our food addictions to everything because I've gone through what you're talking about myself in certain circumstances with alcohol I've gone through it with food and I tell myself okay I'm going to do this in my life I'm not going to drink or I'm not going to you know I'm going to eat this way for this period of time and then I'm going to reward myself as you mentioned exactly. you know, tomorrow I can have a glass of wine or tomorrow I can mm-hmm. and I can eat this piece of pie or whatever the case may be but- it's amazing how the reward is something that isn't good for us well yeah and then these programs where they talk about it Because a good friend of mine, she's actually been on my podcast. I actually want to connect you with her. She owns an addiction recovery service. She owns multiple of them in California. And she ties CrossFit. They're all CrossFit facilities, as well as helping with uh, addiction counseling from alcohol, drugs, et cetera. Mm -hmm. But we, we talked about the fact of, you know, in life, we have all these different things that are fed to us in these programs that say it's okay to have cheat days. It's okay to have to fall off the wagon. Well, right. I'd rather I'd rather not. If it, if you're at that point <laughs> where you've had to go through that program or any type of a program, it, you know, again, there's nothing wrong. Like you said, you can get to a point where you can have a glass of wine. Realize you're a great drinker. Get to a point where you can actually have a glass of wine, and you're not having a glass of wine for a week or two weeks or whatever. That's fine, but I find most people that are day drinkers, I call them people that are drinking constantly at lunch, supper, before they go to bed. I have many friends that are similar to what you talked about, going through a bottle of wine in a day. They, I can't see them ever getting back to a point where they can just have a glass of wine once in a mm-hmm. while. Would Would you agree, or do you think there is a point where somebody can get back to a point where they can just have a glass of wine and be okay? Yeah, so that's the interesting thing with great drinking, where it's not a clinical disease. There is actually potential to change the behavior and the patterns and the mindset. So I do think that people could have limited alcohol in a mindful way. It all depends on why they're drinking. You know, I think when you start doing the work, you'll understand why you were drinking and you may have misconceptions 
about what the alcohol was giving you. So you may be the kind of person, well, I like to have a glass or two on the couch at night to unwind. I'm a type A personality. It really helps me just chill out. It's my moment. It's my reward. Once I've done my to-do list all day, I've, you know, drank my water. I did my work. I've worked out. I made a great dinner. Whatever your list may be, my reward is to unwind with a couple glasses of wine at night. Well, the unwinding isn't actually the alcohol. The unwinding is taking time for yourself. And if that is sitting on a couch and watching a movie or watching a book, that's the actual unwinding moment. And people need to learn that. And taking the step back, they'll realize, oh, huh, if I had had a couple of glasses of wine tonight, that wouldn't have made me relax anymore. I was pretty relaxed as it was. And they start to come into different awarenesses. And when you have those awarenesses, you can let go the connection to the behavior that you were engaging in. So when you realize that oh, I can have go out with my friends and have just as much fun. And guess what? I didn't drink a thousand calories and I'm not hungover and I'm not whatever. And you're checking the positives and you, you come to realize that what you thought the alcohol was bringing you was not there. That, it, you know, that you had that capacity to relax, to enjoy, to unwind, to mourn, to get through challenges without alcohol you no longer need it. And so that it could be reintroduced, but that needs not there. That, that, that connection, yeah, that false connection isn't there anymore. Yeah. And also a lot of times in my work in addiction, I really did find that for the true alcoholic and the addict, that there, in a lot, most cases than not, there was some sort of trauma, abuse, maybe illness, there could have been some tragedy in the life and circumstances and mental illness that really was the factor that differentiated or brought them to the clinical side of the addiction or the alcoholism. So a lot of times the gray drinker can be a very well-adjusted capable individual juggling many balls successfully they have friendships they have they're in a healthy marriage they've got they may have you know you you can do things well and you're looking to alcohol for whatever it is for that reward the reprieve the exhale and you need to learn that you can do that all on your own through different avenues and not through the bottle yeah, that is so true. Um, that mental defining moment where a person can realize that, uh, like, as you mentioned, you're, you're sitting on the couch, and you're actually were already relaxed, you actually had unwound. But yet you convince yourself it's okay to have that one, two, three glasses of wine, because you want to unwind. We have to appreciate that we as human beings can do it without that external alcohol or drugs or whatever the exactly. case may be that that food and that's a struggle but thank goodness there's people such as yourself that are teaching people that it's okay that you know what analyze your day were you unwound already why did you need that 
sometimes I've, you know, I've had those conversations, not to the level that you have. And it always goes back to, well, this is what my dad did. This is what my mom did. Because mm. I'll ask him questions. What happened in your childhood? What were your parents like? Oh, dad would get home and do this. Like my own father, love him to pieces. Every day when he got home for decades, um, he'd have one drink every single day. And he'd have a like a whiskey and a Coke, like a Crown Royal or whatever, every single day. And as I got older, I used to think to myself, you know, and, and now this is, guess, back to what you were talking about. Would that person, is that person an alcoholic or is that person a gray drinker? What would that? I would, would think you, that's, what, I would say that's a gray drinker. Yeah, for okay. sure. And usually with alcoholism, things have taken a turn in your life. You're at a point where like a gray drinker won't, hit rock bottom like there's no rock bottom there because the drinking is not at a level that it is negatively impacting either your work life or your personal relationships so that's why it's very tricky to define and that's why if I were to go to friends and say oh listen like am I drinking too much as we're having lunch having a bottle of wine the answer around the table would be like, of course you're not. Look, like you don't drink any more than we do. But that doesn't mean that everyone there drinking isn't needing to reevaluate the relationship with alcohol. The alcoholic, it's it's a very clear picture. There, it has become detrimental and having a negative impact in your life. Where the gray drinker, it doesn't necessarily do that to the extent where it's causing damage. Now, let me back up a bit because with great drinking, yes, it can cause a different shade of damage. So th very subtle things you may find, wow, like I'm getting along better with my husband. Not that things may have been shitty or really bad, but you're realizing things are just better. You know, you're realizing that there, there was maybe a little veneer of things that got better that was removed when you stopped drinking. Well, is so that because your focus is, is taken away from thinking about drinking and, and put toward other things? I don't think necessarily, I don't think it's like an all consuming. I don't think it becomes like an all consuming nine thing. I think it, it's just part of your life when you're drinking like that, when you're a great drinker, it's just there. It's part of your life. It's become commonplace and you're just doing it. So it's not an all-consuming thought. But what I think it does is it is a spirit. I like, I love when someone brought that back to me. Like it is a spirit, but it's a negative spirit. So there's just this little film almost of this, this negative spirit that's really put a barrier between you and actualizing a different kind of happiness, a different kind of contentment a true joy. You'll never really get there if you have that, that in between you and the, that positivity and that love and that, that goodness in the world. So I think that's where you'll find the difference. So although it may not have done damage per se that your marriage ended or you lost your job or you had a, whatever it may be, you will notice the subtle differences and it's those subtleties like waking up and saying three thank yous in the morning that can change your mindset at, over the person who doesn't. 
So they can be subtle changes, but they can have a profound impact for your life and for your joy and for your emotional, spiritual, and physical well-being. Yeah, I like how you put that. It's the subtle changes. And I I don't use those words. I tell people it's the little baby steps that are going to make a difference Mm. in your life. It's right. Maybe someday you'll go past the baby steps and you'll be, you know, be walking tall and (laughs) confident and then you'll be running. Maybe you're jogging through life. And, you know, it's those little small steps that we need to take and, and realization. And for me, it's also important when you're on any of these journeys to association. And the reason I bring that up is you talked about the ladies around the table and you're all drinking and asking them if you drink too much and they'll go, well, no, no more than us. Our associations are so key in our thought process and whether it's addiction to spending, I have clients like that or alcohol or food. Some of them, they have all the addictions. They've got a really slammed life. They they, they need to change their associations of who they hang out with because usually they're associating and hanging out with people that are all the same. Now, obviously, if it's their significant other, it is important that they communicate and work through it together, but it doesn't mean they can't change. I tell people, it doesn't mean that you can't change. Of course. Of course, we can always, that's the great thing. We have our thoughts and our thoughts impact our emotions and our emotions are what propel us into action. So, and that action may be inaction. You may decide to do nothing about your situation, but that's still taking an action. So if I, you know, if I'm having a thought that creates a positive emotion, then I'm going to want more of that. So I'll do whatever is, causing those positive thoughts. And conversely, if I'm doing something that's bringing negative emotion, negative energy, I'm either going to do something to get me out of that place and to make me feel positive, or I'm going to do nothing and I'm going to stay in the negativity. So we do have a choice and we can change our thoughts and our patterns of behavior and our emotions. Yeah, absolutely. I appreciate your take on all of this and your knowledge is is so um, spot on. I I look forward to getting to know you better. One of the things I want to, we're going to getting close to the end here, your book, which you mentioned comes out in October, I believe you said the great drinking reset, a 30 day journey to wellness was written and designed to help women who are gray drinkers. Can you tell us what one can expect? What transformational experience should they choose to engage in this book? <laughs> yeah, so the 30 days, it's built each day where I'll be asking you to do different things. So it can start with the little things like a different gratitude practice in the morning. It can be about physical things, starting to drink more water about being physically active for a a certain amount of time a day, doing guided meditations that I provide you with. There'll also be journaling and I will share with you very candidly from my journaling also so that you don't feel alone or alien on that journey, that you'll realize that everything that you are thinking and experiencing we probably have all felt in some form. So I'm pretty candid with my, with my voice there. There'll be things like a word of the day and what that means to us on the journey there and a different written exercise. So it's, it's in depth and it takes you through the 30 days through all the different things that you will feel and experience. We've touched on a few here, 
um, how you'll have fears and anxieties and worries about yourself, about your relationship with your partner, about what does that look like for your friendships? As you said, associations, are you going to need to cultivate new friendships? Are you going to feel comfortable to maintain those friendships? Do you have a true friendship if alcohol is removed? You're going to experience a lot. And hopefully at the end of the 30 days, you will be in a place where you are empowered and you are feeling really good without the alcohol in your life. And you will continue and you'll, you'll go through a journey that hopefully is a catalyst for positive change in all aspects of your life. Wow. It's, it sounds tremendous. Sounds amazing. I know there's many people in my life that I am going to direct toward this book and to checking you out, uh, you know, as a, as a mentor for them to change their lives, because there's, as I mentioned, I've, this isn't something that hasn't crossed my mind literally hundreds of times in the last decade about how many people are gray drinkers and, and how it, it irritates me, even watching a TV show that could be brand new and there's alcohol already involved in mm -hmm. it, right? Or mm -hmm. a movie and there's alcohol involved in it already. It's our society has become so numb to the fact that, you know, it's become like drinking, a, you know, here's a glass of water. Yes. Oh, here's a scotch. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's just like, would you like something to drink? I don't know how many clients I go into in the last 20 years. Would you like something to drink? Oh, it's like water. Are you sure you don't want something more heavy than that? Is something stronger? No, no, I'm fine. Glass of water, coffee, tea, whatever. Though. Right. That's good. That's good. And, you know, and I've actually had clients that I've had to say, next time we get together, could we, you know, no drinking, please. I'd like it to be more clear headed. Right. And mm -hmm. I've lost clients because of it, because they're literally are sitting there drinking two, three beers in a meeting or they're drinking two, three whiskeys or whatever. And I've found that they're not, they're making not the best decisions or they're not necessarily being the most honest with me because that's still a band-aid they're hiding behind. Mm. Right. And I've had to tell people, you know, you know, no, you know, please don't. Right. And yeah. why do I do that? It's not because I don't want to help them because I've in 20 years of experience, I can't help them if they're going to sit there and they're going to be, you know, we're worrying about their six inches between their ears. Cause I spend probably 10 to 15 hours just working on them. They're where they've got come from peeling back the layers of the onion to figure out all your financial strife started somewhere. What was your childhood like? It's like having that origin conversation that we did. I do that mm -hmm. with my clients. Like, where did you, where were you at? And then being relatable with them. And, and that's what you're doing with your book. And as you mentioned, you're, you're going to share with them how you journal. You're being the genuine, vulnerable you so that you can serve and coach other. And kudos to you. Like, that's well, amazing. You. You're you. welcome. Like, I honestly think you've already done a lot of good in your life. And I look forward to following your journey, right? Continuing you. how you're going to help. And so likewise, many. yes. Yeah, I appreciate that. So Carrie, if you had to give our listeners one last closing message, what would you tell them in regards to giving a heck and never giving up? Hmm. I would say that if anything regarding gray drinking has got you curious or it's resonating with you, 
go to the grade drinking reset quiz. And there's a little quiz we have online. It will be available soon. And you can just check in, do the quiz. And if from the quiz you want more information or you want to go further on the journey, the 10 day free reset will be available to you. And from that, if you want to go even further, then we've got the 30 day, right? We've got the book and then we'll have an online program. But to give a heck, I think we need to start the conversation because at a lunch, let's go back to the lunch example. Even by me saying, hey, listen, I think I heard on this great podcast, you know, give a heck. They're talking about great drinking. I think I might be a great drinker. And, you know, I'm going to do this 10 day reset. And all your friends may say, you don't have a problem. You drink just, you know, they don't because when we do that, we're putting a mirror up to them and they may not be ready to acknowledge that they're a great drinker also. But what you're doing by having that initial conversation is you're getting their entire internal dialogue started. So they may not be ready today. They may not be ready tomorrow, but here's the thing it may do. It'll get them thinking. And if they see you do the reset and then you come back saying, you know what? I feel really good. I'm not feeling bloated. I'm feeling clear. I've actually lost. You're even just talking about the physical benefits, not even the emotional and spiritual and mental benefits. That might encourage them or give them the permission they need to feel like it's okay for them to step back from alcohol and try the reset too. So don't be afraid. Just start a conversation. Start asking people, listen, I'm thinking I'm drinking too much. What makes you think that? Well, because, you know, I'm drinking this much and I'm thinking maybe I should stop for a bit. What do you think? Start the conversation. Yeah, exactly. Plant the seed, right? Plant that seed. Plant the seed and then water it. And if you're a person that does what Carrie talks about, don't be afraid to be vulnerable and share with people. Even if you haven't talked to them prior, you've done this 10 day and you notice a difference and you've decided to go on to the 30 day journey, be vulnerable with people. That's mm. part of the part of the problem with not being able to effectively change one person at a time when we think we can't is because we maybe change ourselves, but we hide it. We don't want to be vulnerable right. and have people, you know, criticize or judge us well, why did you do that you never had any problem with alcohol carry <laughs> you know like right. you're perfect the way you are what are you doing well you know what i fooled myself into thinking i was too but i realized i was a great drinker and it helped and i i felt bloated i, I was gaining weight i felt foggy and this is what i've discovered and i want to continue on with this journey you know a true friend's going to go good for you carrie you know i'm exactly. here to support you if they don't change, that's okay. You've planted a seed because of your vulnerability and honesty. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So, yeah. So I love that. That's great closing message. So our time is almost up. And I want to respect our listeners and your time. However, before we end, can you please tell the listeners what's the best way to reach you? You can either reach me at carryshell.com, and that's shell S C H E L L. Dot com or you can go to the gray drinking reset quiz.com okay i'll make sure that goes into the show yeah. notes um listeners new listeners old listeners you know how to reach uh, all the information on show notes go to giveaheck.com hit the podcast portal button you'll see carrie's smiley face and below it will be um 
the show notes, abbreviated show notes, as well as all the links and how you can reach out and connect with her. And yeah, it's, it's amazing. The conversation we've had and I feel so good. Thank you. Me so much. too. Thank you yes. so much. I feel honored to have been speaking with you today. Yeah. The honor has been all mine. I, I learned so much, as I mentioned to you before we started recording from my podcast. Um, it's a passion thing for me and it just continues to drive me forward and changing people's lives started with me doing it. And then it spreads out to the wealth of the listeners. And I've, I've got so many great friends out of it that I'm still Amazing. communicating with today that I started with in November, 2020, this podcast, and I have people reaching out to me and we have conversations and you're welcome to do the same. Thank you. You're welcome. So thanks so much for being on. Give a heck, Carrie. I appreciate your time and sharing some of your experiences so that others too can learn it is never too late to give a heck. Thank you for taking time out of your day and listening to Give a Heck. If you find value, I'd appreciate you sharing with your friends and family so they too can learn how to live life on purpose, not by accident. So you do not miss the next episode. Please subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and please also post a review. I look forward to reading your comments. This has been Dwight Heck. If you want to check out other podcast episodes or today's show notes, please check out my website, giveaheck.com. And until next time, together let us all strive to give a heck.